The following is a production of Casually Hardcore and Versus the World Productions. www.vtwproductions.com Am I uh, usurping your job here? No, go right ahead. Okay. They don't want to hear me. All right. Um, w- w- when the picture began, um, Stanley Kubrick uh, thought he might use... Um, an actor by the name of Marty Balsam. I don't know how many of you remember the movie Psycho. He was, those of you may know the film, he was the detective that was stabbed on the stairway. Um, He did a lot of movies. He was a very, very important actor. He was in 12 Angry Men and uh, a very recognizable star in his day. Then Stanley very quickly decided, no, he's too New York. Got to get a different sound. So then he hired a British actor by the name of Nigel Davenport. Uh, who had done, he was a film actor and, and was appeared in the West End of London in the theater. And he was there on the set and he started the first week uh, doing the voice of Hal off camera for us. And then Stanley said, no, this isn't going to work, too British. He said, let's worry about it after, in post-production after the film is over. So he turned to his uh, di- assistant director. Um, now, 2001 was filmed in its entirety in just outside of London. So the crew was completely British, with a few exceptions. And um, uh, this was the voice of Hal for us. His name was Derek Cracknell. Yeah, Derek Cracknell was the name of the, of the assistant director. And went like this. <clears throat> dive, dive. Better take a stress pill, dive. All like that. A little bit like working with Michael Caine. Oh, yeah, I kid you not. This is exactly the way the voice of Hal was for us. Daisy, Daisy, give me your answer true. I'm half crazy over the love of you. And that was the voice of Hal for us. So let me tell you, the greatest bit of acting we had to do was to not crack up when we heard the voice of Hal. Um, And it was a great relief uh, when we saw the film uh, two years later, because it did take two years after principal photography was over, to hear those golden tones of... uh, uh, of um, um, help me out. Um, Who was the guy? Uh, Doug, Douglas Raines. Douglas Raines, Doug by the way, is a very well-known Shakespearean actor who mainly uh, works in live theater in Canada, playing leads like uh, uh, you know from the, his early days to playing Hamlet to King Lear. He's a very fa- he will not have anything to do with 2001 because he says. I have spent my whole life appearing in the major roles of the greatest playwright in in English history, and all anybody wants to talk to me about is a job which consisted of two days. (laughs) Gary, your toying. Well, I'm going to say this. I'll just put it this way. I'm happy for him. He probably lives in the back of his car. (laughs) But, well... There's a reality to life. But uh, I'm sorry he's so uptight. You know what I'm saying? He could come out and have some laughs with us. And, because we've traveled all over the world with this film, and it's been a great time, hasn't it? It's been fabulous. We've been in Australia, Japan, Europe. I mean, last year we toured all through Europe. I mean, we've we just had a hell of a great time. And, it, and, it, and I'm so happy we did the job. And it was a wonderful time. And we did it. And I'll tell you one thing that happened to me on the picture. And... And then we'll get into questions. How's that? Uh, <clears throat> did you want to have something to say over there, man? I mean, <laughs> no, I'm just I'm just here to look pretty. What's your name? You I'm Jack Mangan. I'm, I'll be handling the questions. Well, but, Jack, we okay. met you yesterday. Nice We're, to see you. Have a good night. It was all right. Yeah. <laughs> How are you doing? <laughs> was she cooperative? 
Um, <laughs> she usually is. Yeah, okay. Well, let's give Jack a hand. What the hell are you saying? <laughs> In the movie, uh, Akira walks down the hub, and then he walks up to me, and I'm up there eating, and everybody goes... How did how did Kier walk up that hill like that? I mean, how that that how did he walk up against gravity? Well, here's what happened: the camera's in a it's a wheel. The camera's in a fixed position at the top of the wheel with me. I'm harnessed. I'm upside down. Uh, on the first day, I'm up there, and then the idea is that Kier comes down the hub, and then as he steps out on the centrifuge, <clears throat> Lynn. Are in, in, in what would I get my di- first? I get my my meal in a, on a tray. Yeah, you get your meal, and then he starts walking up to me, and Lynn runs a rheostat on the centrifuge, and it begins to turn. And it, and and the camera and I, being in a fixed position, we come down to him. But when you project it, it looks like he walked up to us. Yeah, it was an optical illusion. I just stood in place like this, and they revolved Gary down to me until the table was even with me. I just sat next to, him, but it looked like I walked up tied down. Which is a, you the see, only difference is he didn't have on a squirrel uniform. <laughs> the remarkable thing about the film is that... Wait, let me just finish. The, okay, yeah. go ahead. So, you know, what can I say? He's the captain of the ship. I have to do what he says. <laughs> anyway, um, so, so the first time we do it, Stanley said... And Stanley was a very cool guy. He was really like a cool guy. And he said, <clears throat> all right, Lockwood, on action, just start eating... And so I've got this fork. And you've got to remember, down below is this way, not this way. I'm upside down. So I take the fork and I stick it in the, the yellow stuff. Yellow, green, and blue, was it? Something like that. And I stick it in the yellow stuff, and the whole plate, the whole dish just peels out of the plate and goes 65 feet down and goes... <laughs> Talk about a Rorschach test. I've often thought 2001 was a Rorschach test for people. Well... I have to tell you, I remember looking down like that, and the entire floor was just a mess like that. Anyway, that was day one. Took a couple of days to finally get the shot, but eventually we got it because I just ate some of the, I hate oatmeal too. Even English cut oats I hate. And now I had to eat um, oatmeal with red dye in it. But anyway, we got the shot. Yeah. The other thing I just was going to say is that uh, it's amazing when still seeing the show, the, the, the film, and how remarkable it is in so many ways to think that there is not one frame that is photographed using computer-generated uh, special effects. There were no computer, not one, even though the computer play, made, played a major role. Everything you saw in the film was done mechanically, one way or the other. So having said that, any questions? You do want to handle that? Uh, well, no, we'll, we'll let him go. Yeah. We'll let him come out. <clears throat> Well, there's that, that many of us here, is there? What? We're not that many here. Yeah. Well, they went through the trouble of putting in the stairs. Yeah, we've got to use right. it. This guy's doing back-breaking labor. I hope no one has a bad knee who has a question. You know what we should do to save time? Why don't anybody who wants a question maybe line up and they can take their, their turn and ask a question rather than... Just an idea. If, you, if you're thinking about a question or at any point when you do think of a question, why don't you just wander up to the stairway? Okay. First of all, uh, good, e- good afternoon, gentlemen. It's great to have you here. And um, here, happy birthday. I know your birthday's on Sunday, I believe. Right? That's right. Thank you. You know what? I was going to call him. I was going to call him this morning and have my partner and I and a couple of us who were over to some La Quinta motel. And we were going to. So, so why don't we all together sing happy birthday? To oh, come on. <laughs> sorry, sorry. You got to take it. So, 
Happy birthday to you. Happy Where's the cake? Come on over here. Happy birthday, dear Kier. Happy birthday to you. Thank you, Frank. Thank you, Hal. Actually, in the film, he's, Hal said that to me, didn't he? Happy birthday. That's right. That's right. So I suppose my question was, um, I, I know the film took a long time from the time it started to the time it was released. I'm not sure how much of that what you were involved in during the principal photography but um, I know there was a lot of long hours and as you said it took a couple days just to get that one takedown. I was wondering if that crazy production schedule had any sort of um, negative effects or strain, or strain on your personal and social lives during that period. Good. It did me. The producer of um, Dirty Dozen uh, wanted me to play the role that John Cassavetes got the Academy Award for. <laughs> And he kept going to Stanley saying, okay, could I get a release date like in a month? Stanley wouldn't release it. Yeah, they were, and they were filming at the next soundstage next to us. And he said he, he rearranged his schedule so that I could come in three weeks later. And I'm going, it was a huge job and a giant hunk of money considering I made very little for 2001. You know, when, when my agent called me and told me I got the Kubrick film. My, he told me what I was going to get, which was very little, actually. And I said, now, what we should do is offer him that money so I, I am definitely getting the job. That's, that's the way I felt about Kubrick. I actually enjoyed my stay in London. It didn't bother me that it was taking so long because I got a chance to really enjoy swinging London that much longer than on an average film. Because we were yeah, they it. used to sell uh, yeah. trash cans with the uh, English flag on them. Remember? The, yeah. It actually took... Um, I don't remember when the film actually started shooting. The first thing to be shot was all the stuff to do with the scientists finding the monolith on the moon and all the stuff on the space station. That was done first. In fact... I think the space station was the last thing to be done before we started work, and the very last thing to be shot in the film was after we were finished when they shot the Dawn of Man sequence, um, which happens to be my favorite part of the film. Um, maybe because it was the, uh, it's the one I had least expectations about. I had no idea it was going to be alike, and it just, it just blew me out of my seat when I saw that. The, the opening of the film. I can also add one little thing yeah. to that, and that is that Stanley and Arthur C. Clarke started walking around Manhattan discussing pieces of the story and the concept, and then they would, they would uh, you know, part their ways and then uh, come back years later or months later. And so from the time that started until we actually arrived in your neighborhood theater was 10 years. So that's how long it takes to make a good wine. That's how long it takes to make a good film. Any other questions? And thanks to Dave for that question, by the way. Yeah, good Thank question. You, Dave. Here's a gentleman. Hi, I'm Warren. Hi, uh, it's very, I just have to say it's a privilege to be talking to you. I'm, 2001 meant a lot to me. I saw it when it first came out um, in Cinerama. But um, uh, I have a so many questions. I'll start with one, which I, I think may apply to Kier more than uh, Gary. But when you were first when you were first cast and you were learning what the story was, I don't even know if there was a script that you had. But did you have problems sort of grasping what was happening to you and what was going on? Because it's such a you know 
tough movie to grasp, really. Well, I'll just give you the short version, as short as I can. Um, I was making a film in London uh, in the spring and summer, <clears throat> spring of 1995. I believe the uh, 2001 started filming in the fall sometime. Anyway, I got a call from my agent, and he said, um, are you sitting down? I, s- I said, no. He said, you better sit down. I said, okay, what? Just as out of the blue, he said, you've just been offered the lead in Stanley Kubrick's next film. And i got to tell you, I did not know that anything like this was in the works. And I, it's a good thing I was sitting down, because I was an extraordinarily... I was a real Kubrick fan. I mean, I had seen everything that he had done before that. Lolita, Dr. Str- uh, Dr. Love, uh, Paths of Glory, which happens to be my favorite Kubrick film. The Killing with Sterling Hayden. I mean, I just couldn't believe my fortune in being cast in that. So I read the script, such as it was. There's no way any script could ever begin to hint at what we were going <laughs> to we were going to see. I mean, it's sort of like you know the famous uh, uh, you know the the, the the cavalry comes over the mountain. That's one sentence in in, in a screenplay. You know, well, you can imagine uh, uh, a monolith appears on the moon. You know, one sentence. There's no way that we could have gotten any idea what this is going to be like. Nonetheless, it kind of, in a way, gave me a general idea of the literal plot of the film, and something uh, stood out as, to be, as being familiar, and then it went crashing into my head that, as a young 12 or 13-year-old, I had been a, a real science fiction fan and subscribed to a sounding science fiction, galaxy science fiction, a science a fantasy, and sci- those were three important science fiction magazines in the in the in the fifties. And um, I had read a short story by Arthur C. Clarke called *The Sentinel*, about the finding of the monolith, the moon. That, that's all that short story dwelled on. But that was I realized uh, because it did have Arthur C. Clarke's name on the script. I said, that's why it's familiar. So that was the germ of the idea that ended up being 2001. Gary. Well, there are various things in 2001 that, that changed as we went along. Like any good project, it's constantly in a state of flux. And uh, that's the way the universe is. It's constantly in a state of flux. There are no positives, no negatives. I mean, that's the way it is. And a good film, uh, and, and Kubrick being the best director maybe that ever had a lens finder in his hand, was a man who could constantly adopt to the type of activities that were going on or a new piece of technology involved, a new camera technique. We introduced a lot of things that had never been done before, green screen, blue screen, front projection, things that I'm sure those of you who are film buffs all know about. So there you go. Bob's your uncle. i got to stop for just a second, but there's a familiar character there. And, and I better say something to he or she, and that is, <clears throat> open the pod bay door, please, Hal. You know, as far as I'm concerned, you can just get right out of the room, pal, because you killed me. <laughs> oh, no, 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 hold on. The fans enjoy seeing you over there, but just stay over there. Um. As a, just a little follow-up. So sure. when you were shooting uh, the scenes uh, going through the abyss and all those scenes at the hotel room at the end, what was Kubrick's direction to you? I mean, what, what did he, how did he tell you how to play? Or did he not give you anything? Well, you know... Action, I think. <laughs> By that time, it was the last thing shot. It was, in that sense, it was in continuity, which is rare in film. And, you know, we had such a... By that time... 
we, we, we had been working for, with each other for four months, and you kind of have a, you can all, you, you, there's almost a silent communication that doesn't, at that point in a film, if, if it's been a good situation between a director and an actor, there's not a lot that has to be said. And it was written in the script, but it had to be done. We, we, we exchanged ideas, like one of the things that we discussed was how each older version of my character, as it appeared, how that should happen, as it ended up which I thought was brilliant, the idea that the uh, older version would look back at the young, younger version. Well, first the younger version would hear something or see something and look, and then you'd want to, the camera would want to see what is he looking at. And you'd see the older version looking back, and then you'd see what he saw, and there's nothing there anymore. It just There was nothing disappearing in a puff of smoke, some corny way of handling it. I thought that was... And the only thing I added it to the film that wasn't in the script was knocking over the glass... And the reason that happened was that I just wanted a different way of hearing something. So I said to Stanley, why don't you have me, let me knock over a glass, and as I'm reaching down to pick, some, pick it up, I hear something. And I look up from that crouched you position. You around, I remember, that's a nice yeah, shot. Yeah, that was, that's all that, you know, a lot of people f- try to read in some kind of philosophical <laughs> thing about my knocking over the glass, but that's all it was. <laughs> Thank you very Isn't much. Isn't that the way it is? Did you ever read Moby Dick? Thanks, Warren. I mean, there's a, a lot of question. different versions of what the white whale was. Um, before I let the next person up, I'm going to uh, abuse my power. I'm going to ask a follow-up question of my own, if, if you don't sure. mind. My name is Maurice Northup, by the way. Okay. Uh, thrilled to be here, gentlemen. A great a respect for both of you. Um, as, he, as you followed up with when he asked, you were a big fan of science fiction. My question is this. How did you view science fiction and science and technology prior to being in the movie and then after? Did the movie change how you view science, science fiction, our pursuit of going into space, or did, you, did your, you your view of that evolve, or did well, it stay the same? I, well, I, 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 I was not a giant sci-fi fan. I did read sci-fi. I read, you know, some. But I was, I ended, I was an athlete who was an English major, so you know where my head was. I, I was reading, you know, the Russians and the classics and things of that nature, and sci-fi was not my favorite because most of the time... It was just about somebody killing bugs or something, or some, you know. And it wasn't my favorite genre, but I did read Arthur Clarke. And I, and I liked it, and so I did have a little bit of my foot in sci fi. And afterward, I can't say that I went back to sci fi because, you know, other than Blade Runner, I'm not real, you know, I'm not all that thrilled with a lot of the sci fi movies personally, but that's me. Uh, I, I was, as I said, I was really a diehard science fiction fan in, when I was starting around 12, 13, 14, all the way through my, my teenage years. And uh, um, I, I didn't, and I thought a lot of it was junk, but I loved it because there was always 10%. It was like things by Arthur C. Clarke and Robert Heinlein and... and um, I read that. Oh, gosh, the, the man who wrote the screenplay for Moby Dick, who's out of my mind, uh, Bray Bradbury. Uh, and others like that, who wrote, they created literature. It wasn't just science fiction. I loved the high end of science fiction, and there was enough good stuff. And even in those magazines, there was always one really fine short story by well-known science fiction, Harlan Ellison, so on. Yeah, so, William Gibson. You know, I really loved it. No, by the time I made 2001, I don't think I was reading science fiction anymore. I don't know why. Maybe it was just a teenage thing. Maybe it was my form of escapism at that point. Um, uh, but and I'm still. But I, I've enjoyed some science fiction film. I think in. Um, I think yeah. I, I loved. Uh, I mean, 
I know Gary doesn't feel the same way, but I, I, I enjoyed Avatar very much. I thought I have I a like very Avatar. Which oh, fun. did you like it? Okay. Well, yeah, I had a, a very good friend. My very close friend played the role of the heavy, the the kind of marine type who has the big duel at the end, and his name was um, Stephen Lang, fabulous actor. You know what I liked about Avatar because I I had been an artist as a kid. I started oil painting in my room when I was a very young boy. You know, I mean, you're, you have that gene pool, you don't. And one of the things that I loved about Avatar, I didn't care for the story at all. I thought it was kind of boring. But I have to tell you, I really enjoyed looking at it because there were so many beautiful moments. And I just sat back and, and put my pituitary uh, gland on, on cruise control. And I said, okay, I don't like this story, but boy, am I enjoying what I'm looking at. It was fabulous. I mean, there was so many great... I mean, I'm sure you enjoyed it yourself from a visual point of view, or maybe you did buy into that cor- horrible story. I don't know. <laughs> oh, I've got something else I might share with you, which I think... Sorry. Um, there was a a speech that I had to memorize uh, in the film, which had to do with speaking the mission control uh, about uh, regarding the, um, the 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 antenna, whatever whatever piece of equipment that Hal created. A E thirty five. Thank you. Well, actually, I'm, okay. Thank you. Uh, but I was trying to remember what it actually was, not the name of it, because uh, it was an antenna. That doesn't matter for the story. It was an antenna. Uh, the power box. So. The- I memor and it was very difficult to memorize because it was scientific gobbledygook. It really sounded like like a this kind of a scientific ease speech, and it was very difficult. So I, for a month, I kept memorizing over and over because I wanted to get it right. Anyway, I did it. Well, it was never used because Stanley decided that it was too similar to another speech that Mission Control said to us, and he didn't feel it was needed. However, because of the way I memorized it. I've retained most of it to this day. So this is, this is how it went. This is now, what was that? 1966. Mission Control, this is X-ray Delta One. At 1902 onboard fault prediction center, not a 9000 computer showed Alpha Echo 35 unit is possible failure within 48 hours. Request check your in-ship system simulator. Also confirm your approval our plan to go EVA and replace Alpha Echo 35 unit prior to failure. Mission Control, this is X-Ray Delta One. Transmission concluded. That was it. Okay. Mr. DeLay, Mr. DeLay, Noel Coward would have been proud of you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he always believed actors should come to the first day of rehearsal with all their lines learned. And I'd normally never do that, but I just finished an off-Broadway play with Marsha Mason about three weeks ago, just closed, and it was a huge line load. And I have an older brain now that does it's much harder to learn lines at my age than it was when I was a young actor. Much harder. And I said, I better learn. And I had six months to learn it. Um, and I, used, I, I studied it every single day. And yes, Noel Carr would have been proud because I arrived at the first day of rehearsal word perfect. It was the first time in my life I've ever done that. As a matter of fact. Anyway, back to science, uh, to science fiction. All right. Well, All thank right. you very much. Uh, yeah. Todd has a question. First, for Mr. DeLay, you were asked to reprise your role in the 2010 film. What was your initial reaction when you heard that a sequel was being produced? Well, I was, uh, I was, living, in, I was living back east. Most of my career I've lived, I was a New York actor. And out of 52 years of professional acting, I've only lived in L.A. for six 
But at this point, I was back in Connecticut, where I live now, and um, I went out to do something. I can't remember what it was. Uh, and I saw in Variety that they were going to make uh, a sequel. And um, I hadn't heard from anybody. And I didn't have a very good agent at the time. So what I did was I called out of the blue, just cold called. To th- uh, this was 1983 or four. So that from 66, 76, uh, almost 20 years later. And um, I called uh, the director, Peter Himes. I got through to him. I got a secretary and explained who I was. I said, I hope I can speak to him. And he got on the phone with me. And I said, Peter, uh, you know, you probably figure 18 years later, I look so much different and older. You probably never even thought of using me. But um, um, I think we should have a meeting before you make that decision. I think I'll surprise you. And um, so we did. He, we met in the commissary. We had a conversation, and later that day when I got home, my agent called and said I had a firm offer due to the role, and that's how, how that happened. That was one of the more striking things I noticed about that presentation is you nailed it. You looked precisely the way you looked. In yeah, the well, scene. I hadn't aged. It's a little different now, but I hadn't aged that much. At that point, I was fortunate. I, I inherited some good genes from my dad, and I hadn't really visually looked that much older. And It was kind of interesting because uh, the only kind of wonderful thing about that film because nobody involved with it had been involved with 2001 not one person except the voice of Hal this time they had pre-recorded the uh, the Canadian actor and so I had this comforting feeling of working with an old friend now Arthur Clark dipped his toes back into the 2001 universe several times including a novel which features the return of Dr. Poole who coincidentally, the character is about your age in the book. And I was wondering if anyone's ever approached you uh, about uh, producing the next novel in the series featuring your character. I've been retired 18 years. I don't... But you never can tell. (laughs) But I haven't heard of any plans to make a film out of it. Have you? No. No, No, I... You know, these are things... People say these things to me. You know, you should uh, produce or do this or do that. You know, movies are so expensive anymore that, you know, and everybody who makes the decision is 22 years old, and, and, and it's all by committee. It's a whole new business. You know, and here in my day, uh, you could do something like, I ended up, you know, I ended up doing the, the television version of Bus Stop, which was a very famous movie. You're probably too young to know it, but... They already had it cast. The guy did it in Broadway. The, the guy did it in the movie. And, the, and, and my agent called up and said, I know a guy who's probably be the, you know, the best Bodeca there ever was. I don't know. And so the studio, uh, Dominic Dunn, uh, the guy who directed all the Dirty Harrys, all those guys were in an office. And I came in there. They'd never seen me before. And uh, I, Buddy Epson was there to read with me. And I just kicked the hell out of the audition, and I got, uh, they, they replaced the guy that had done it on Broadway with me, a totally unknown actor, and I went to work the next Monday with all these famous people, Marilyn Maxwell, Joseph Cotton, everyone, and uh, the point that I'm trying to make, that's not going to happen very much anymore. It's a, it's a, it's a different industry uh, when young people say to me, Hey, look, my, my cousin's an actor, and he would really... Do you have any advice on how he should get ahead or anything like that? First off, it's almost impossible even to get an agent now. You know, I mean, it's just a completely... 
there where there used to be a few three or four thousand people you know who had every year the Greyhound buses would drop all these people from all over America to come and be actors and then three or four years later 98 percent of them went back in the bus and the others became waiters the, <laughs> well you understand where I'm coming from it's a different deal now and you can't I wouldn't even attempt to try to to try to go in and talk to the 23-year-old people. You know what I mean? Hi, I'm Gary Lockwood. Thank no, you they don't much. care. They, they all work for some company or corporation. You know, I'm gonna, I want to jump in and ask you guys a quick question. Um, just getting back to the movie 2001, and obviously since this is a, you've mentioned even the movies, I know a lot of people have come out of the movie and said, what the hell just happened? I have no idea what this movie's about. So... Do you guys ever get that question? Do people ever say to you, what is this movie about? Never have gotten that question. Really? Ever. <laughs> people want to know what this movie's about. <laughs> oh, Has anyone I, I, ever asked you what Kubrick was like? Never. <laughs> no, uh, but but um, the short answer in terms of what the movie means, what the ultimate meaning, and that was when it first was released, you know, that's what Cocktail Party Talk was all about. <laughs> what does this movie mean? I, uh, and I'm not trying to avoid, the, but I think this, there's a truth to what I'm about to say, and that is, Kubrick was a great cinema artist. It's, he's still studying in film school, just the way Orson Welles' films, Citizen Kane, is part of curriculum when you go to film school. And um, he was beyond, the, beyond heads above most filmmakers, and therefore his work are works of art. And it's analogous to any work of art. You go to a museum and look at a Picasso or, a, or even the, the Mona Lisa, which is more realistic painting, you know, there's that famous smile. You know, is it sarcastic? Is, is, is it sexy? Is it what, what does the smile mean? Or a Picasso? What do those three eyes mean in in that kind of distorted figure? And they're not around to answer the question. They not being the, the the painters. And what's far more valid is what happens between you and the um, what's the experience you have when you stand stand in front of that painting? And that is as valid an answer to what any painting means. There's no universal answer to the meaning of works of art. Uh, and I think it's the same. You, you, I think you can have many people agree that it's beautiful. And, and, and I think that's the same thing with 2001. Kubrick was always enigmatic in the, his filmmaking and didn't, like most films, Hollywood films, that kind of tie up the plots in, in comfortable, predictable little bows for you so that you understood everything. And I think that's what 2010 was an attempt, maybe, to explain... 2001. Not so much on this part of Arthur Clarke as it was on the part of uh, the filmmakers in Hollywood. But um, so that's my answer. That is the perfect answer. I think I'd agree. What about you, uh, Gary Lockwood? You have. Well, you know, the film is is a language. It's a language painted by a camera rather than a brush. And what you, what I, what I want to say to you is that you know this thing about typecasting or things of that nature. I once had a really I, I was under contract to a great director years ago, named Amelia Kazan, and he was a strange duck and everything. But you know, his attitude and and the guy who d- directed Dirty Harry, uh, uh, Seagull, what's his name? I forgot. Yeah. Anyway, they all said to me, you know, if you can get as close to the character when they walk in the door, if they can talk or walk or do something, here's what you got to remember about making a movie. It's a whole bunch of pieces, and you shoot it, you shoot it, you shoot it, and in case 2001, years of shooting before you assemble. 
And so when you're in the editing room, like this Roger Ebert, this idiot that's on TV, goes, oh, the editing was crisp and wonderful. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Editing is being in a room with a whole bunch of pieces and saying, okay, how can we assemble this close-up with this cut, with this master? Next time you watch something, look at how it's painting the picture of what it's trying to say about the story. Now, if you have an actor that's got the right look for what he does... 90% 90% of the time, an actor's not talking when, he, when he's doing a film. He's just, you know, reacting to things or looking. And each time, if he's the right person, you're projecting your story forward. You see what I'm saying? Okay. Now, so you put all these pieces together. Then the music comes. Then this comes. Everything comes. And I can just say this. Every year, there's not that many great films. We all know that. Everybody wants to know why. Because it's, it takes a very unique group or talent or almost like an epiphany, you know, an act of heaven or something to make a movie really be good. And so we wouldn't be in front of you today if 2001 really, really wasn't good. I mean, a lot of people didn't like it. But here we are, many years later, talking about it. And we're asking questions, and, and some of you are, you know, a third my age, and you still have questions. That's my point about a great film. I saw No Country for Old Men a few years ago. I don't know if you liked it, but in my opinion, it's absolutely brilliant. So it's a different story, but there you go. Bob's your uncle once more time. Anyone who didn't like 2001 is a savage with no culture. You know what? I've used that very same term, and I have to tell you, I agree with you. <laughs> Thank you. No, I need here. Uh, Savage. Kanoi no has a question for you. Hi. Hello. Hi. Sorry. Are you a little shy, my dear? Yeah. You know, here's a good thing to do. Let's all do it with you. Take a breath in. Let it out. Now take another breath in. Let half of it out. Bend your knees slightly. No, too much. And just reach over and say what you want to say. Okay. Well, um... Push the mic down. That'll help. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Well, uh, last semester in my uh, high school class, I took a lit class and it was sci-fi. And I actually watched 2001 for the first time. And it wasn't just me, but... Basically, the whole class, just the movie had a huge effect on us, and we loved it, and we all became, like, ridiculous nerds for the movie. (laughs) But I would just like to ask, what is your reaction to the fact that the movie, even though it was made in the 60s, it still has a huge effect on younger generations? Kerr answered it earlier when he said, a work of art, Picasso. And that's, you know, why people go to the museum and stand and look at Mona Lisa. You know, that's what makes a classic. The definition of a classic is something that lasts generation after generation. So what you've just said, and it's so heartening for me, for both of us, that people your age are respond to this film the way you do. Uh, it, it, and again, it proves that it's a classic. It has staying power, you know. Uh, uh, well, that's why Shakespeare's still around, because he was that good. And uh, so uh, I, I love, that's why I love doing these shows. I, I'm meeting, I love talking to the old, old folks like us who remember the film and still want to meet us. But like it's a the, Japanese samurai story, thousands of years old, yeah. and, then, and went through an incredible process to still be alive today, and they can still cut you in half. <laughs> But, yeah, uh, I'd appreciate it. Thank you. Um, I also-
also have another question. Mm -hmm. What would you say would be your fondest memories from working on 2001? Uh, I don't want you to say anything about the girls in England. I won't say a word. Yeah, not a word. Although the food was terrible. Well, uh, also, also, working with working with Stanley was was a high. He was. You knew that you were in the pre. I felt I knew that I was in the presence of genius. There's no question about it. I mean, you know, it could have it could have been Norson Wells, and he was very supportive. He was a very. He never screamed. He never. I had just come off a terrible director, literally. Uh, the, two months before, I think I may have mentioned I was doing a film in London when I got the word that they wanted me for 2001. It was an infamous director by the name of Otto Preminger. And uh, for those younger people who don't know who he was, there was a famous movie about, the, uh, about a prisoner of war cap during the Second World War uh, of Allied prisoners. And the commandant, the Nazi commandant of the prisoner of war camp was played by Otto Preminger. And I tell people... That was Otto on a nice day. So going from that to this extraordinary human being, Stanley Kubrick, uh, was like going from hell to heaven. Yeah. By the way, that was Stalag 17. Stal- Stal- yeah, Stalag 17. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You did really well. She, she would like to know if she can get a hug from you. Of course. A hug from both of us? No one wants to hug the moderator. Oh, <laughs> here he comes. All right, I think All we right. have... Daisy, Daisy, give me your answer true. So the three of you together again. This questioner needs no introduction. Okay. Did you plan this, Kier? <laughs> That's great. Forgive me for being so inquisitive. Oh. <laughs> wow. Tell them the... And the melodramatic touch of putting Doctors Hunter, Kimball, and Kaminsky aboard, already in hibernation after four months of separate training on their own. That's brilliant. That is brilliant. Well done. Thank you, Hal. Well done. We don't know whether it's a guy or I, I think from the legs it's a guy. Sure Terrific. I don't well think done. Stanley would approve of the uh, Levi's. <laughs> <laughs> it's well Casual done. Friday on the Odyssey. <laughs> this looks like there's another question coming up. Yep. Yes. Uh, while he's stepping up, I have a quick question sure. uh, for you. W- one of the things that I love the most about 2001, A Space Odyssey, as opposed to uh, most other sci- science fiction films... And I'm told that what I like the most is uh, actual ratings death for a film, and that's realism. Um, you don't see that, that kind of attention to detail and the realism of what space travel is like and what astronauts have to go through. Uh, I mean, his decision to have no sound, for example, to, you know, no rocketing spaceship, little details like that. I, I, I was wondering if you have any comments about that. I have, I have one quick one. Stanley... At one point, he and I, I don't know, we were having a glass of wine looking at Rushes or something. And he said, you know, I, I looked at him. We were watching the Rushes, and I said, you know, everything is so beautiful. I said, it's amazing. I, I knew we'd have an interesting movie, but I never thought it would be this beautiful most of the time. And he said, well, remember, 
more realistic we make it, the more we can zap them at the end. Think about that. That's a real brilliant storyteller. If he gets you to buy in that he really was there and I really was there and we really had this environment, and as he killed the people off, Hal and everything, everybody buys into Hal, and I, I know that Kier will attest to this, you don't have any idea because we've been doing uh, shows for a period of time, and these people come up to us and they say, that movie changed my life. It was a game changer. It was a this. It was a that. I was going to med school. I dropped out. I went to computer school. So, uh, you know, I also did the pilot for Star Trek, and that's also sci-fi genre. But, you know, people don't come up to me and say, oh, thank you. They don't come up to me and say, well, you know, I, uh, I you know, they come up and say, I, I bought a, an ashtray that looks like the Enterprise or something. <laughs> anyway, you, you get my picture. Hi, um, me again. I, I was curious, did you feel at the time when it came out, did you feel that it had a, a positive effect on your careers, negative effect? And, and then as the years went by, do you feel it had some effect on your Strangely career? Strangely enough, it had absolutely no effect on my career whatsoever. Maybe if, if the reaction people have today to the film could have been the reaction then, it might have. It didn't mean I didn't stop working, but it's all, many other films had far more influence, and I don't know why. You know, the film, in the, when it came out, it was not universally applauded by any means. In fact, some very well-known critics, one was in Newsweek magazine. I can't remember the, one of the New York papers. There were, other, uh, you know, there were a number of uh, significant critics that panned the film. We got a lot of bad reviews. And, and in, in a couple of cases, I must say, one was, was Newsweek, and I've forgotten the other one. They, several months later, came back and said, re-reviewed it and said, in, a, in essence, I was wrong. But other than that, nobody retracted their bad reviews. And it really was what made the, what made the film successful early on, I think. Well, I'll give you an example. In San Francisco, which was the height of the flower children period, and people were smoking funny cigarettes, and you could smell it in the movie theater. And it had the longest single run in, the, in a first-run theater in the United <laughs> States. It was in San Francisco. And uh, I, I don't think that hurt the sales of the film. But um, people really were confused. They hadn't ever seen a film like it. And they didn't know how to react to it. And so there was a lot of, there was a lot of positive reaction, but there also was a lot of negative reaction. <laughs> also, Stanley did not... Uh, you know, Stanley kind of recognized early on that if he was going to be the kind of filmmaker he wanted to be, he had to be independent from Hollywood. So as of after he had made the, 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 the killing? No, the, no he, he, he after, was making... Um, after the... No, uh, he was making the, the Kirk Douglas film, Spartacus. Spartacus. Oh, that was made in partly in Hollywood. And yeah, was and he, that, was, he was working there, and he received a little guff from the... People at the top, because I remember him telling me this story. He, he was, was a replacement director. And he moved to, uh, the whole thing to Europe. Yeah. And then he stayed in Europe. He decided he was going to live in Europe as far away from the head offices in Hollywood. And so all of his films, which were all brilliant, uh, was, I think to a great extent he was able to do that because he distanced himself so completely. So there was a lot of resentment about Stanley Kubrick. Can you believe all those films that I have... 
that we that I've mentioned. I haven't even mentioned the films that we that, after two thousand. I mentioned the ones that I had been fans of before, but Doctor Strange Love and uh, the one with Ryan O'Neill. I can't think of the name of it, but Barry Lyndon, Barry Lyndon, and The Shining and uh, Full Metal Jacket. And we realize though, here's this great filmmaker, and he only aver- how many? He only averaged um, a film every four and a half years if you take his whole career. He didn't make that many films, given. But um, it is unbelievable to me that that he would never uh, that he never won an Oscar. I mean, no, it isn't unbelievable. I do understand. I think to a great extent it was the politics of Hollywood, and they really resented him. He is, was never even. Well, I guess he was nominated, but he never won an Academy Award. Not even posthumously, they haven't done it, which is unbelievable. Anyway, I'm uh, just to add one quick thing here. Um, something you might enjoy. We, we all remember uh, the Beatles, right? Well, sure. John, the head Beatle, liked the movie so much, and, and I met him once, and he told me this. He said he bought two tickets to every performance for one year in Leicester Square and instructed and set up an office, and every, every showing, somebody got a free – there were two tickets – yeah, they were and, and they were hard tickets. Do... So I was buying like like buying a ticket to a Broadway play. In those days, they had first run films. You actually bought a ticket, just like a, you would go to a Broadway house, and that's what he did. Yeah, yes, he did. So he, it was a hard ticket, and someone would come in and say, you know, I'd like to see Thursday afternoon, and they'd somebody. I mean, well, anyway, that's never been done for any other movie, to my knowledge. Thanks. You're very welcome. Questions, sir. All right. How are we uh, time-wise here? We have a little bit of time left. It's, it's 1.30, right? Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, so 1 o'clock. Yes, sir, your name? Kerry. Kerry. Hi. <clears throat> Technical question. Why don't you stand in front of the mic? We'll hear you better. Oh, they'll, hear, they'll hear you better. Okay. Better. About that. Okay. In the, uh, the scene, Mr. DeLay, in which you uh, were in the computer core disabling hell, it's always been one of my favorite scenes because no matter how closely I look at it, you can't tell how you're being wired. And I was wondering if you could just mention how you, uh, how that went and well, how it you mean worked. physically how it was done? Yes. Well, it, um, for the longer shots where you see all my whole body, I was, throughout the scene, I was hanging upside down. And, you know, they, they, they would kind of just kind of give a slight motion like, just to kind of, but then for the close-up, all I did was kind of do the same thing, just like I'm doing now. As for the close-up, that's all I had to do. Kind of a, you know, little uh, airy fairy like this, you know. I, and and uh, but actually, it's interesting you should mention that because uh, uh, clearly the characters we play were not emotional types, and that was intentional. We were, we had background resumes to indicate the kind of psychological profiles and that we would be about as st- so steady in the, in the face of adversity that it would take an awful lot to upset us. But in that scene, uh, I don't know how many, how many know um, an old-time movie, it was a, a Steinbeck, based on the Steinbeck novel called Of Mice and Men. How many know Mice and Men? Well, yeah. for those of you who don't, very quickly, it was about a, um, a man whose traveling buddy was a uh, retarded very retarded uh, individual and he would always tell them stories about some this is during the depression and you knew their stories were never going to 
bear fruit. But he would always tell her, we're going we're gonna to buy a farm and we're going to get the cows and the rabbits and so on. And the, 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 the retarded character, oh, thank you, Dad, George, tell me about the rabbits. Will you tell me about the rabbits again? So for me, taking Hal apart, because at the end of the, uh, at the, end of the Steinbeck film, uh, Mice and Men, as a, he has, it's a mercy killing. He kills his buddy because he knows that he's going to be strung up for a murder that he didn't really, he didn't know what he was doing. He was trying to, it was a girl he killed inadvertently and, and they're going to string him up. There's like a posse that's after him. And to avoid that, and see, he has him look out into the horizon. He says, you know, and he's got the gun at the back of his head and he says, you know, I can't remember the Lenny, maybe it's, Lenny, I can't, it's Lenny. Lenny, Lenny, you remember? We're, yeah, George, we're going to get the rabbits. That's right, Lenny. And as he's telling the story, he shoots him. Well, in a way, t- taking Hal apart was one of the f- emotional parts for me because it was a like um, dismantling this brain. It was a little like shooting on the back of the head, only it was more slow. Because I would say, he'd start singing. I'd say, yeah, go ahead, sing it for me. Sing it for me, Hal. You know, just trying to ease him into non-existence. Well, just one quick comment. Um, I've been in autopilot avionics design for the last 30 years. And every time we put a display up, I look at it and say, how does this compare to 2001? (laughs) And to be honest, uh, I'm still waiting for 2001 to look dated. (laughs) Thank you. That's a great compliment. That 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 movie never will be dated because it's... There was a lot of research and a lot of people from NASA and a lot of people involved and some great artists creating those things and and the critical eye of Kubrick. So... How will it ever look dated? I mean, it's never going to look dated. I'm sorry, but the conditions and the ingredients in the stew are not going to allow that. I tend to agree. And actually, I want to, I'm sorry, I want to jump in really quickly and ask you a lot. We've heard a lot of people talk about their favorite scenes. And, uh, and I think 2001, on, on top of being just a brilliant journey, is a collection of some of the most iconic scenes in cinema history. So what are, for you guys, what are some of your absolute, the scenes that, that really stand out? For, uh, for each of you. Well, for me, I think I mentioned earlier when we first started speaking, my favorite section of the film was the Dawn of Man sequence because there are two moments that I think are just <laughs> so brilliant on Stanley Kubrick's role. I mean, such... Uh, one is when the ape in triumph throws the bone in the air and in slow motion it morphs into a space vehicle. And I didn't... I only discovered recently that it wasn't just a space vehicle it was a nuclear weapon so if you think about in a, in a blink of the eye Stanley Kubrick in one cut took you a million years in the future and yet what was it it was a weapon the first weapon morphed into the most fearsome weapon that we have today a nuclear weapon it's such a brilliant concept to have done that. And the other moment that's uh, my favorite moment in the film is what I call the missing link moment when the lead ape, this is after he's encountered the monolith and that whatever transgresses between the monolith and he, whatever information, because obviously in this case it's kind of a teaching tool that changes the... Uh, the mind and brain of the uh, primitive man. Anyway, he's fiddling around with bones aimlessly, kind of maybe looking for insects, and, he's, and he, he strikes something with the bone, another bone, and a chip flies off. So action and reaction the, in, from physics. And you just see him go, you know when you have a dog and the dog suddenly is curious about a sound you've made, the dog will go like that? Well, that's what the ape does. It's even subtler, but he just goes... 
like that. And it's the missing link moment. It's the link from the ape to modern man. It's an extraordinary moment. So that happens to be my favorite scene. Great answers, yeah. Uh, Paul has a question for you. Uh, hi. Um, for me, what really makes that movie work is actually your two performances. And the, the part, uh, I guess the part that I always think of is, is um, when Hal first, first asks you um, if you have any doubts about the mission. Because to me, that just that's a very tense moment. And, and I, I just wondered, and then later when you're looking at the piece from the antenna and the two of you just kind of look at each other, how, was it, was it a, your ideas to be so subdued emotionally? Because, yes. Because that, that is really what makes it work. Is, is the we're actors. Were, we, made, we did it for a living. Well, uh, did you study then, astronauts to... Uh, no, well, no, but the point I'm trying to make is that if you... I mean, there's no, it's not going to be Jim Carrey, you know? I mean, Jim Carrey can't... They say action, and then by the time they've rolled 20 foot of film, he's made nine faces. I didn't think it, it took rocket scientists on our behalf. I'm not trying to be weird with you, but I mean, you know, you get on a job and you're playing two guys going to Jupiter. We're not going to be, you know, Charlie Hustle. We're not Pete Rose, you know, but the, there's like a subtext. Well, I think, I think um, it all had to do with the concept of these characters who, as I said earlier, are such steady personalities. And he, he really, Kubrick really wanted for the most part, except for a few heightened moments like when Hal won't let me back in the ship, really wanted us to play the simplest uh, aspect of reality. Simple, but I don't think Stanley ever reality. really said that. No, he didn't say, I'm just interpreting no, I mean, what he wanted. I have a lot of people coming up to me saying, God, the way Stanley directed you guys are so brilliant. You know, trust me, over the years, really good directors don't tell us how to do our yeah, job. He's that right. Much. I mean, I don't. Everybody else talks about bad directors over direct. Yeah, and that's that's, Ro- really- that's Roger Ebert on television telling you how great the editing was and how wonderful this director was. Once in a while, depending on the type of story you're doing, where there's a lot of intimacy. When I worked on Splinter to Grass, and and Natalie Wood was a fragile character. Remember in Splinter to Grass. And Kazan kind of guided her through the picture. I mean, he would do things with her hair, and that, that's, that's a different kind of directing. A Kubrick film, there's a lot of actors in the business didn't like Kubrick's films because they thought they were cold and unemotional. Now, you know, that, I think that's also silly. I, the point that I'm trying to make is mo- making a film is such a personal art of the people involved making it. And a director it comes from all walks of life, and Kubrick happened to be one of those people who had all the ingredients to create brilliance. Not everybody has that capability. No matter how much they love cinema or they're gifted or they go to film school, maybe they don't really have the tools. But you can't tell people that. And so they make the other kind of movies you see, like the Jim Carrey movies. Hey, Jim, give me another reaction by the door. Okay, how's that? You know, so that's a, I don't even watch those movies. I think also, I think also uh, uh, like part of being a great director is brilliant casting. And if you cast right, you don't have to do a lot of direction. You've cast... And I remember Stanley was saying that. You know, you are so, you're exactly what I've been looking for. This is what I want. And, you know, we're very different than Ryan O'Neill. Ryan O'Neill in the, was quite brilliant in, in um, 
Yeah, I keep forgetting was. the name of the film, yeah. but you know, he was brilliant. But I can see why he cast Ryan O'Neill if you know the character. Sure, it, he, he, I'm sure he didn't give him a lot of. Directions. If you examine the character Barry Lyndon, Brian was the closest guy in the industry to Barry Lyndon. Exactly. They could have cast Warren Beatty. Wouldn't have been as effective. Probably not. Yeah. Anyway. Warren Beatty tried to get our parts, by the way. And Warren's a friend of mine. And Warren said to me after um, we got bad reviews for a couple times, and then we were in Los Angeles. And at the intermission, after the intermission, we came out, and we'd always come outside in the lobby for a minute. And I remember Bonnie and Clyde had just come out, and Gene Hackman and Warren Beatty came out and walked up to me. And Beatty is is a good guy. I like him. And he looked at me, and he goes, you're so lucky. You're in the greatest movie ever made. I remember that. Yeah, I remember you talking about <laughs> Here's he. Yes. All right, John has a question for you. Uh, as most of us know, Kubrick died before he could actually direct AI, and, uh, which, of course, was a great tragedy. And <laughs> his, his friend Steven Spielberg took over the reins and actually did it. And I, I personally uh, was was rather disappointed in the film and I, I just feel like it would have been very different if Kubrick had done it even though I heard the story that the two of them talked on the phone for hours about the film and that Spielberg supposedly did it just the way Kubrick would have done it which I, I still can't believe but I, I just <laughs> that's two of us because yeah it, it, it had the typical touchy feely yeah, feeling yeah. of a Spielberg film and, and seemed very alien to what Kubrick would have done. And also the book was, for any of those who read it, it was more about how this android boy simulated human emotions and how humans reacted to him. And Spielberg's film was very different. So I just wanted the input from the two of you as to how you felt about it. I have just one comment. The greatest moment for me in E.T. was when he got drunk and bumped into the refrigerator door. <laughs> I, well, I really I have no comment. You said it. I, I totally agree with you. It would have been a different film without, without question. Yeah. Thank you, John. Yeah, I haven't had the same reaction to Eyes Wide Shut, which I know he died before it was done. It still felt like the final touches that were put on Eyes Wide Shut, it still felt like it had strayed a little bit from even what we're used to with Kubrick. I felt like there was still a lot of subtleties that whoever finished it didn't... Uh, Let me, may I ask you about a question about Eyes Wide Shut? Sure. No, I'm sorry. I'm going to ask you a question. Sure. Do you remember at the end of the film when Tom Cruise goes back and he gets in bed and his wife is uh, in bed and there's a mask on the pillow? I'd be lying if I said yes, I remember. But no, they're, okay, I'm with you. Well, the reason I say that is I asked people about... Some people didn't like Eyes Wide Shut. I found it very interesting. I mean, it wasn't my favorite Kubrick picture, but, I mean, Stanley Zoe's got something up his sleeve. And I thought the movie was kind of interesting to watch. I mean, I've seen it two or three times now. And every time I see it, there's just a little bit something there. Maybe one of the areas where life had passed Stanley by was the whole sex thing. You know, the whole sex thing. I mean, there had been so much pornography and everything, but by the time that movie came out, I mean, there was, you know, it didn't mean anything anymore. I mean, sex on screen, my God, every, you know, look how it's, I mean, when I was a young actor in the 60s, early 60s I started, I mean, my God, you couldn't even, I did a movie with Anouk May, and we were in bed, 
And uh, we had the covers up like, you know, I mean, it was a completely different time period. And now you see, you know, you can go tap into pornography on the Internet. Who even bothers? Some of you may. I don't know. I think it's... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. uh, John has a question for you. Oh, James. Pardon me. James. John was a question. Uh, I wanted to say uh, uh, that uh, I, I like what you said earlier, Gary, that, that he's the finest director who's ever held a viewfinder. I think that's true, and, and I also agree with Warren Beatty. It's, I think, head and shoulders, the greatest motion picture ever made. Um, so given that, and given, like, here some of the things that you were saying very fondly, speaking of Kubrick very fondly, um, I was wondering if what you guys' relationship with him was post after the film, specifically in regards to the film. I know Malcolm McDowell has said he thought that he'd have this relationship with him for the rest of his life and then he barely ever spoke to him again. Um, And I know that Kubrick also said, or I've read, that he really didn't want there to be a sequel and had like actually destroyed the models. So did he have a conversation with you at any point about doing the sequel or did you talk to him or did you guys just never talk again? Never. Never came up. Really? Not with me anyway. I mean, never. did you have any type of relationship with him afterwards with regards to Not the film? Not much. I, uh, well, we saw him, I saw him again um, when the film was about to be released. It was released in New York. He came to New York. He came by ship. You know, Stanley Kubrick, it's funny. He made all, here he made 2000 with the Space Odyssey. He did not fly. Uh, he, he got his pilot's license early on in his young life and realized how dangerous it could be and never flew again, wouldn't allow his family to fly. They always traveled across the, uh, the world, and that's why he, he also never came, hardly ever came to the United States because he didn't fly. But to, he did come to the, to the premiere by ship. And, uh, and um, I don't know, that was the only thing I wanted to share with you is that your irony of this man who made this thing about going to the moon uh, I mean, going to Jupiter uh, did not get on an airplane. But we didn't either until that point. I've, it was Stanley who talked me into... I went through a period where I was afraid of flying, and I've gotten over it by now, totally. But um, I was very nervous about flying. In fact, I took a ship, too, to arrive in London to begin filming 2001. And two years later, when the film was released, um, I, I, I turned down a, a trip around the... Not all around the world, but to go to the premieres in Hawaii and in Tokyo and in um, Melbourne and Sydney, Australia. And I turned it down because I was going to have to fly and Stanley called me and uh, talked me into going. So I, <laughs> so I went. And he actually got me flying again because I began to fly after that. So. Funny. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, James. Uh, does anybody else have any questions? Uh, oh, so sorry. I, you snuck in on me. Wow. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. Are you gentlemen staying afterwards to answer any questions afterwards, or do you have places? Well, we have to get back. But listen, if anybody wants to come talk to us or um, buy some autograph pictures, we're in uh, booth 604, if you can find us, among all the other stuff that's going on. I hope somebody comes and buys one Star Trek. I always sell a lot of Star Trek, and I'm not kidding you. I haven't sold one Star Trek since I've been here. (laughs) I was here for one hour last night, and it kind of cracked me up. I go... I just picked up a brand new set of beautiful Star Trek from the lab before I got here. And I turned to Mary, the lady that prepared them for me, and I said, Oh, some of these are great. That'll knock their socks off. This is a 2001 crowd. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have a question? Uh, Please. Yeah, she, what's your name again? Kai, Kai would has one more question. Yeah, get in front of the mic so we can hear you better. Yeah. Okay, I didn't know if I should wait till afterwards um, during the autograph signings or now, and I had a question about an agent. 
About an agent? Yeah. What do you mean? I want to know how to get a good one. <laughs> you oh, can write. You can write a book on that, my dear. That it's one very difficult. Agents are very. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a what is it? it's a um, uh, what's what's the, the Joseph Heller book? It's a catch twenty two situation because the agent will say, um, uh, "Let me know when you're in something." And 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 you, so you got to look around and and you go try to get a job and they say oh I'm sorry you have to be you have to be submitted by an agent and you go back to the agents they say I have to be submitted by an I'm sorry you're gonna have to do, you know I, what I, I can't do? represent you until I know to see you in something you it know is, what I would do if I were you if you really want to try to take a shot at being an actor I've never ever turned anybody you know whenever anyone has said to me boy I'd really like to do that I'm not the type of person who is that cynical to say that's silly. Because I want to tell you, I had a friend years ago who, was, who said to me he wanted to be an actor, and I couldn't possibly believe he'd ever have a career. That was Danny DeVito. <laughs> you know, he's now a director. But the point that I'm trying to make is that today it is so much more difficult than our day. And I would suggest that what you do is you find somebody that has some available cash money and... Go to somebody who works in a film school in a university or something and write a short film starring you and, and make sure that you show some skills, some acting skills and situations and talk and move and, and just, you know, prepare an eight or nine minute film. And then the next time that situation arrives, give them the film and you don't know what might happen. steps ahead of the game. I've written about 20 books, 20 full-length books. But they're not on film. No, they're not. Oh, you, well, there's also, were you talking about an agent that represents authors? Well, see, that's the thing. I want to star in the movies, and I understand that, like you said, it's essential to have skills and know how to write and market yourself, so I've got that part down. So the next step would be finding that person with all the cash. <laughs> but you know everything in life that ends up being worthwhile is, takes that kind of effort so good luck to you okay well I guess everybody here will be seeing me on the silver screen bravo <laughs> that's the attitude that's the only way that's going to work let me know if you find that person with all that cash I'd like to talk to him too <laughs> maybe we could pass a hat here <laughs> Uh, I have one final question. We're running out of time here. But I would just like to ask uh, you gentlemen, of the things that you've done since 2001, which is, you know, obviously the epic film that's brought you all here today, but if 2001 never existed, what would you say was your work, the, 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 the piece of work that you did that, that stands, uh, you know, worthy of, of praise and notice and you think you did, you know, was, you know, that was a pretty darn good job too? Oh, I have, I'd just say Fire Creek. I played the gunslinger. And... Every young guy growing up plays guns, you know, in the park or with his friends. And I got cast as the gunslinger in Fire Creek who got the girl. I get shot by Jimmy Stewart. But I have to be, I'll just tell you a fast, funny thing about it. Uh, the director came to me and he said, okay, Lockwood, what I want you to do in this, and I had been a cowboy stuntman before I was an actor, so, I mean, I knew how to do all the fights in there. I knew how to do everything. And he said, Listen, do you ever do any gunplay? And I said, no. He said, well, I want you at some point to just do an old-fashioned and back in your holster. I said, oh, okay. He 
He said, I've hired a guy who's really good at this. He's going to teach you how to do it, all the mechanics of it. So let me tell you what I did very quickly. I did this every day. I'd get a gun from props, and I'd flip it, and I'd do this. And then I, and I got after, a, you know, it's 14 weeks of work, and about the, we were going to shoot that sort of like the last couple weeks. So after about 10 weeks, I developed this incredible blister on my finger, huh? Can you hear me? I developed this incredible blister on my finger. And about a day before we shoot the scene, the blister pops. <laughs> and I, I go to the director. I said, hey, Vince, it's unbelievable. I can't even hold the damn gun in my thing. You know, and he said, oh, geez, what are we going to do? I said, I don't know. He said, well, go to, go to, go to makeup and have them put a Band-Aid on it and then paint it up like your finger. So now I had a Band-Aid on my finger. And I, I, I ended up doing it, but here's what is funny about it. If you ever see the movie, I go, real cool, with this thing, and I put it in my... And underneath, I'm going... <laughs> there you go. Well, in my own case, I suppose uh, there are really three things that I'm most... You know, it depends when you ask the question, because I've been in the business long enough that my, I can divide my professional life into eras, you know, like I'm in one of the latter eras of my life. And I just... Uh, so there are three... Bro- uh, Two Broadway plays and one off-Broadway play that I'm particular, kind of, uh, for me, the heightened experiences. I just closed in an off-Broadway play with Marsha Mason in New York uh, in a revival of Robert Anderson's I Never Sang for My Father, which was a movie in the early 70s with Gene Hackman and, and uh, Melvin Douglas. Uh, that would be the most recent high point. And then two Broadway, I've done five Broadway plays, but two Broadway plays uh, stand up there as being something I'm particularly proud of. One was uh, Butterflies Are Free uh, with Blythe Danner and Eileen Heckert, who won an Academy Award for the movie. They didn't ask uh, Blythe and myself to be in the movie, but the Broadway play was a high point. And the other one was a revival of Tennessee Williams' Cat on a Hot Tin Roof in, um, in New York. We were the first revival, we were the first Broadway revival ever. And that was with um, Elizabeth Ashley and and um, my old pal and 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 Fred Gwynn, if you remember him from the um, he yeah. played uh, yeah. that, what was the name of his series? Herman Munster. Car Fifty Four. Where are you and the monsters? What, yeah, and the other the other one he was in it, and uh, so that was a high point. Those would be three high points in my life. All I've right. done twenty six films, but I'm for me I'm a real I'm a theater actor. I can tell you, high point in my career is I did a, a job. The first time a lady ever appeared on screen, and her boyfriend was a friend of mine. And he said, Lockwood, he said, my girlfriend is going to do her first job with you, and she's absolutely gorgeous, and keep your hands off of her. (laughs) And I said, okay, Larry. I mean, we grew up, we were cowboys together, and cowboys are tough, so you respect them. And I said, all right, Larry. Larry'd be a hell of a fight for me. So anyway, the end of the story is I go, and I was a bit of a womanizer when I was a young man, and my makeup guy always went with me, and his name was Stan, and he had a great sense of humor, and so I come in this morning on this new job at Paramount Studio, and Stan's putting the makeup on me, and he looks at me and he said, we have three magnificent women on this picture. And he said, it's going to be a lot of fun to try to watch you move between them so that you're not obvious in your intentions. <laughs> <laughs> well, he knows about it. He was, no, he was the same as I was. And so anyway, <laughs> anyway, here's what happened. 
Stan is standing right here, and I'm sitting like reading the L.A. Times or whatever the hell it was. And um, I read other books too, but, you know, in the morning you read the Times. And so Stan is putting the makeup on me, and I'm just kind of looking here. I got a coffee, and he said, remember what I said about three beautiful women? And he said, yeah. He said, one of them's here right now. And I hear this little voice go, Gary? Curry, and Stan mouths. And I said, who is it? And she said, Kim. I said, Kim? I said, Kim, give me your hand. Let me, let me pull you around here and see you. And I reach around like this, and one of the most beautiful creatures I've ever seen in my life was Kim Bassinger at 25 years old. And I pull her around like this, and I look into her, and she was unbelievably beautiful. And I looked at her, and I said, When you go home, you, you tell Larry to go jump in the creek. <laughs> it was a great, we had great lives. Listen, actors have great lives. Those of us who were successful enough to make a good living and have a lot of fun, he's still doing of a lot of it, and he still enjoys it as much as he did when he was a kid. I'm retired. I live in Canada, and I've been remodeling my two houses, and, and Bob's again my uncle. And, but we had a wonderful time, and, and I appreciate you for all your questions. Yeah. And, yeah. Thank you. And thank Come you visit guys. us at our booth. And thank you guys very much for coming out, and thank we're, you for everything. We're, you've done. In, we're in 604 through 606.